Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by Ed Stewart's radio and our sponsors, the Stewart Foundation and the Silver Giving Foundation. I'm John Fensterwald. Last week, I interviewed co-host and retiring EdSource Executive Director Louis Friedberg about leading EdSource during a decade of significant growth. Today, I'll have the pleasure of introducing you to our new Executive Director, Ann Vasquez, to talk about what lies ahead. Welcome, Ann. It's great to have you on board. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. You know, Ann, you and I go way back, about two decades. We were both at the Mercury News at the same time. You as an education reporter and then editor of the paper's first team of reporters covering race and demographics. I was a new editorial writer with an interest in education. We both shared an interest in high schools in East San Jose, where I go, frankly, to get out of the office, and that you covered. We lived about a mile from each other, and you and your husband, Daniel, was a colleague of mine on the editorial page for a couple years before you and your family moved back to Florida. I say back because you grew up in Miami, the daughter of immigrants who fled Fidel Castro's regime in the early 1960s. You wrote a column in this week's Ed Source about your father's quest to get a college degree in America. It's a fascinating story. Tell me, how did his experience shape your views on education? You know, it it shaped my views on education innately. It's not something that my father preached about. He would wear his college shirt and his college ring with such pride. And that was something that I just saw and his diploma. And later on, he went to trust school and he would hang those certificates and he would often talk about his upbringing in Cuba. He was an orphan by the age of seven. He had a very tough life. He was the youngest of five siblings and he had to prioritize helping to put food on the table for the family. And so he always had this drive to want to learn and to want to learn about the world, but he was really challenged. And so uh, after some really difficult circumstances in Cuba, which included him becoming a political prisoner, he fled like so many Cuban immigrants and Cuban refugees do to America within about a year of my mother. And they started their lives anew in the United States. And they had the support of the International Rescue Committee and the Methodist Church to really place them in a home in Illinois. And and they started their lives there. And my father eventually made it to New York and went into banking. And he saw how the college degree gave you access. It literally meant being on a higher floor at the bank is how my father described it. And so he decided at age 30, it's time to go back to school and it's time to get my degree. And he did that part-time while working full-time, going to his class at night, had my older brother as a toddler when he graduated. And it was a really tough journey for my father. And I just knew that growing up and I knew that education meant access. Well, it was truly an American success story, and no doubt you learned the value of hard work. But how did it kind of shape your views of education policy and your own approach to educating your own two children? Well, in terms of education policy, it certainly drove home this notion that equity and merit really should be synonymous. It shouldn't be an either-or conversation. I really think that there are qualities, and there are studies that show this, there are qualities that being an immigrant or the child of immigrant or coming from a low-income home, there are skills that you learn 
because of those circumstances, whether it's perseverance, whether it's problem-solving skills, um, just the grit, the the perseverance and the drive to really get something done. And as much as our education systems can support and nourish those types of qualities, I think that's where you really start to see a difference. I think children and students who come from those backgrounds absolutely have merit. And their merit could be in academics, their merit could manifest in a lot of other different ways that are going to serve them well in the future. And I think having that conversation, instead of making it a binary conversation of merit or equity, it really needs to be both. So comparisons can be odious, Anne, as we know, but I'm wondering if you learned anything from living in Florida about the Florida schools that can you know, offer either insights or maybe lessons you wouldn't want to apply to California in California schools. Tell us about the differences you've noticed. Well, I am a product of the public school system in Florida. Obviously, it's changed tremendously over the years. My children, uh, I have a 16-year-old and an 11-year-old. They got their start in Florida schools in the public school system. My son made it through fifth grade before we moved back to California, and my daughter was there in preschool and through kindergarten. And one distinction that I immediately noticed moving to California was that kindergarten was not required here. And I found that surprising. I I couldn't imagine my children not going to kindergarten and they went to full-time kindergarten. So I know there are a lot of conversations and have been a, a lot of conversations around that in California. I think the foundation that a child gets in school is tremendously important. And I think that it makes a whole lot of sense to have young children as young as possible, and certainly in kindergarten, to be able to enroll and and that to be expected the same way that you would expect a first grader to enroll or a high schooler. The other difference that I noticed, and it was actually a pleasant surprise when I moved back to California as a parent, was that while there was a need for testing and there was standardized testing, it was not all-consuming, which is how I would describe Florida public schools, at least certainly from my experience. There in Florida, from the first day of school almost until the very last day of school, you are getting assessed. And not only are you getting assessed, but come the middle of the school year, I'd say about January, there is a report that's generated for every student that's given to the parent that really breaks down, these are the areas where your student had trouble or, you know, you might want to shore up. And they had after school classes for the children and for the parents. So everything was about the test. And I would say part of the reason there was so much emphasis, I believe, was that teacher pay was tied to performance and to improvement of the performance on tests. And so when you have that structure, you can't help but have a system where teachers are very focused on a test and they're teaching to a test and that's where the classroom discussions revolve. That's interesting, Anne, because uh, it's been a big debate in California and I think a lot of listeners may appreciate what you said because California was one of its first states to break away with this sort of test obsession under No Child Left Behind, as you know, and so it will be an interesting lived experience that you can bring uh, when you have these discussions. Let's skip ahead in your career. You were a managing editor of the Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, when the newsroom won its first Pulitzer Prize in 2013 for public service. 
Then you became Senior Vice President of Strategic Initiatives and the Chief Digital Officer at Tribune Publishing, where you led the digital strategy for the company across 10 markets, and that included the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Tribune, and it brought you to LA. So that's quite a lot of background in both the business and the editorial sense. And so how were you training not only prepare you to handle fundraising and the business management, which are parts of your job, but also guide what EdSource does as we explore you know, alternative media? Well, storytelling has always been my foundation. That's how I got my start. I would say it was probably the last 11, 12 years of my career that I moved to the digital side in the sense that at that time, the digital side was separate from the print side. And that allowed me to really understand the business side. I had to work with the marketing department. I had to work with sales. I had to work with the product department. And what that taught me was the importance of finding that intersection of great journalism that also can be monetized. And obviously, I spent my career in a corporate setting. EdSource is my first foray into nonprofit journalism. But I think... The goals are the same. Finding that intersection of of the great storytelling and great journalism that we know we need to do, and then finding those who are willing to support us in that mission. How might an Ann Vasquez-led ed source be noticeable to our listeners and our readers, do you think? Well, hopefully... It's started to evolve over the last two and a half years since I first joined EdSource as the Director of Content and Strategic Initiatives. I have really been a champion for different types of storytelling. I think this podcast is a great example of that, and you guys were doing that long before I got to EdSource. I think we've also started to experiment more with video and documentary-style storytelling. I think that could be very powerful in telling these very important stories in education. What are a couple of issues that you'd like to see us write about in the year ahead? Boy, where do I start? There's so many as we emerge from the pandemic. But I think probably the number one issue, and you know this better than anyone, John, is to follow the money. We have this unprecedented opportunity in education with this windfall, both in state dollars and federal dollars. And what are schools and what are districts and what are education systems going to do with that money? And it's not going to be easy to track, but I think an organization like EdSource is up to the task and making sure that we document and chronicle how those dollars are being spent because we have such an opportunity that really extends for the next two to three years because the impacts of this year will be long lasting. And so I think EdSource is going to play a critical role in telling those stories. You often talk about what you call the three C's, community, content, and capital. Tell us what that means, each one. I feel like that is our guide for EdSource. Community being our listeners, our readers, those who follow EdSource and subscribe to our newsletter, who really lean on us to explain very complex issues. That community is in need of someone to help facilitate the conversations around these policy issues and around these important issues that affect not just the schools and not just the teachers, but the students and the parents and everyone uh, around. And I feel like in this past year, we've seen an increased engagement from parents. And I feel like when it comes to community building, EdSource can really play a role in being that facilitator, bringing the different stakeholders together to have a meaningful conversation to figure out what is the best way forward, what are the possible solutions. 
The next is content, which of course is our journalism. That's our currency. Without the journalism, we don't have the trust that we've built with with our readers. And it's really important that our journalism remains top-notch, making sure that we tell the stories that are important to tell carefully choosing which issues to go deep on and and which ones to really kind of have that steady drumbeat that we really need to explore. And then the last C is capital, which for an organization like EdSource is incredibly important. If it weren't for the support of our very generous funders and our donors, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. As executive director, it's important for me to find ways to diversify our revenue. And one of the things we're exploring and really just in the early stages is the potential for a membership model. Not to be confused with a paywall. Uh, We definitely want our content to be accessed in the same way that it has always been accessed and available to our audience. But really, thinking much like public radio, a subscriber model or membership model that gives you an extra benefit for being a member. When at the Mercury News, you led the first demographics and race team. And I know equity is a term that's thrown about a lot these days. What do you think of equity in terms of our mission and what we do? Boy, yes, the race and demographics team at the Mercury News really was groundbreaking for its time. And frankly, would be still today. I think that equity is key to everything that we do. I think it's really important in education in particular that we level the playing field so that everybody has the same access and the same chance for success. And as I mentioned in my column this week for my father, having support and and the acknowledgement that there is a challenge is important, but at the same time, getting away from this deficit-based thinking, which is focused on what a student might lack as opposed to what they might have that could serve them well in the future and really nurturing that. Equity is a very complex, complicated issue. It's certainly not as clear cut as sometimes the discussions make it out to be. And it's certainly nuanced. I think the circumstances are different for every student, depending on their background, depending on their circumstances. You talked about the podcast you know, what do you think? What What's in store for the podcast? Obviously, I'm curious. <laughs> well, we've talked about this. So what, what's the future? What directions do you think that uh, you'd like to see the podcast go? Well, I think the podcast has been a tremendous success for EdSource these past several years in growing its audience. I think you and Lewis have been leaders in this space. And we want to certainly um, carry it on. Um, but we will be taking, the podcast will be taking a hiatus for a little bit of time this summer. And when it returns, there's going to be some really exciting changes that I think uh, you and our audience and everyone will appreciate. And we'll be excited to share that later this summer. Well, and thank you for joining us on this last podcast for right now. And we've been, uh, I'm glad I could introduce you to our, our listeners. We look forward to having you on future podcasts as well. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Swiss's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. So enjoy your summer. We'll see you again soon. Now more than ever, it's important that you follow the events in education and are involved in schools. I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening.